Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. And thank you guys for being with us here this morning. As Pastor Justin said, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of First Peter. First Peter, and hope that you do have your Bible. If you don't have one, there should be one around you. I want to encourage you to open that up, follow along, so you make sure I'm just not making up some stuff. We're going to hit some New Testament this morning and also some Old Testament in our sermon series. Uh, if you're new to mission, one of the things that you will quickly realize is like we like to work through books of the Bible. And that's not only what we think is the healthiest thing to do, but it also forces us as your pastors, teachers, uh, fellow brothers and sisters to um, speak and cover topics that we probably wouldn't choose if we were just picking out topics. Today is one of those for me. I would not pick out and decide on my own probably um, to do this sort of sermon, but because of where we are in the text, I'm thankful that I actually get the opportunity to do this. I'm actually excited about preaching it, um, even though it's, it's something I've probably preached about two times um, in my 14 years of being a pastor. And it has to do with looking at this idea of, of the gospel, our government, and God. And so today we're going to continue our sermon series through 1 Peter and this idea of saturate the gospel everywhere. And what we've been learning about has been our identity and how that the gospel should saturate all of our identity. And then along with Peter, he makes a, a major turn in the trajectory of his letter here. The transition from a very theological, a very, uh, again, uh, focusing on our identity in Christ to some very, very practical applications. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, let's go up above our verses here in verses 11 and 12 that I covered last week. And I'm going to read that to you before we go any further. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, so for chapter 1, chapter 2, half of chapter 2, Again, Peter has been reiterating into this congregation, into this church that is in a culture that is unlike a gospel culture. It is going in a different direction. It is marching to the beat of a different drummer than what the gospel has called us to. And so after encouraging these believers and who they are, in verses 11 and 12, again, he changes direction to say, okay, so since this is who you are, this is the fruit of your identity. And over the next several weeks here, he's going to give us some very specific ideas of how he is wanting us to illustrate the gospel within our conduct in hopes that here's what's going to happen. As we illustrate it in all avenues of life, there are going to be people that are going to still war against us. And yet, through our gospel presentation, both verbally and with our actions, we're not going to see persecution, but we are also going to see people, as he tells us there in verse 12, glorify God because of our good works on the day of visitation. What does he mean there? Essentially, most scholars believe that the day of visitation is the return of Jesus. And so we're going to see people that are present day, today, coming against us on the day that Jesus returns be Christians. So something is going to happen in the rest of their time that God allows them here on this earth. And that is that through the preaching and teaching, through our illustration, through our works and actions and deeds, God is going to save people. So we left people last week saying this, is it worth us? We know the results if we do nothing. Nothing is going to happen. But the results of us doing something is God is going to save some. And so I Today, we'll transition into looking how Peter, and ultimately, I believe the Holy Spirit, is wanting us to engage in the public realm, in this culture, in such a way that people will hear and see the gospel. And so, he starts out here in verses 13 through 17. Let's read that all together. He says, "...be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme." Or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, 
that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The emperor. So the first thing that I want us to see that I believe that this passage tells us in verse 13 is that if you have your own Bible, you can underline this term. It says, be subject to the, for the Lord's sake. Be subject. The, the actual word there, obviously, is the word submit. Now, I know for most Americans, I just cussed. We hate the idea of submission, uh, whether that is to the government um, to your spouse, um, to an employer, all these things that we are going to cover in the next few weeks. We really hate this idea of submitting ourselves to someone else's authority. In our very sinful nature, we have this desire to be in control. We have a desire to be in to be God. So placing someone else or placing ourselves in submission to that person is extremely, extremely difficult. And yet Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is reminding us that we as believers in Christ, if we want to be, have good rapport amongst non-believers, should be in submission specifically here to government. He says, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, with this poses some major issues and questions for us as believers as it did these early Christians. See, one of the major concerns for a pagan government, all right, like those at Rome here, um, is Christianity going to try to overthrow the government. That was a major question that was being asked during this time as First Peter is being written. Who's in control? The Roman government is in control. But there are also these other religions, and even Christianity, were the fulfillment of Judaism, right? And so when you look at the Jewish culture and you look at the Roman culture, those two things were completely opposite. And even within Judaism, there was a group of people, a group of Jews known as the Zealots, who their whole purpose was to eventually overthrow the Roman government. Um, these Jews were fanatical about um, and uncompromising in their pursuit to rid the world of the Roman government, specifically the areas of uh, Jerusalem and those who were, you know, owned by um, the Jewish people. These zealots, as they're called, were uh, constantly strategizing in ways to overthrow the Caesars. This was one of the major frustrations even for Jesus in his ministry. If you read about the disciples, it'll list them out and even says that some of Jesus' disciples, guess who they were? They were zealots. They were coming against, they wanted to come against the Roman government. And yet Jesus even called some of these men to be followers of him in his ministry. This was a major issue by the time that Jesus goes to the cross. Um, there are some scholars that even, would even say that this is one of the major reasons why people stopped following Jesus. See, the Jews for thousands of years have been told that the Messiah was coming, and yet they created an image of that Messiah that he would be a warlike king that would come and overthrow the government. And yet, what is Jesus, the Messiah? How does he come? He comes as a peasant man from Bethlehem, and not as a king, but as a servant. And so once they saw that Jesus wasn't going to come here, you know, with a big sword in his hand and, and overthrow the government and set himself up as king and set up the other Jews as his princes and princes on the earth ruling over the rest of the world, people began to turn against Jesus. So, these type of issues, if you're the government, you begin to question. All right, a lot of these Christians are Jewish. Some of the Jews want to overthrow the government. And so are we going to have problems 
with these Christians? Are we going to have issues with these people? But not only were the authorities and the government concerned about Christians, but the Christians were heavily concerned about the authorities. Both gave good reason. All right? The emperor of Rome during this time of First Peter was either a guy named Claudius or Nero. Most scholars believe that it was a guy named Nero. If you know anything about Roman history, you will quickly learn that Nero was nuts. This dude was brilliantly insane. Okay? Um, he created all different sorts of things, but, but Nero was so crazy, he ended up killing his mom. He ended up killing both of his wives. Um, and it's also believed that he wanted to rebuild a part of the city's central, and so he burnt it to the ground. He had it burned down, and then after it burned to ashes, of course, people were like, who set you know, fire to our city? And Nero immediately blamed it on Christians. So there became this harsh reality as he began to then persecute with the public support these believers. There were a few things that he did. He would cover them in animal fur and then throw them to lions. But one of the most craziest things that Emperor Nero did to Christians is that Nero had all these uh, awesome gardens. And he would go and he would have so uh, soldiers go into the city, round up Christians, take them back to the palace, dip them in tar, impale them on a pole, and light them on fire so that people could come and visit his gardens at night. So if you're a Christian, you're scared of the government. The government is scared of Christians. Christians are scared of the government. It's all guesstimations that I could find that about 100,000 Christians were martyred during the reign of Nero. Christian history tells us that Nero was the one who eventually, after about two years from this point in time, I believe that when Peter wrote this, would eventually kill Peter himself, hang him, crucify him upside down outside the city, and also eventually behead a guy named Paul. What was interesting about this is that if you were the emperor, you are God. You were considered to be divine. They had this thing called the emperor cult or the imperial cult where literally the people worshipped these men as divine gods. What they wanted, they got. Why? Because they were God. If you look at this passage again, he says, um, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's believed, that, again, by most scholars and historians that what Peter is trying to say there is he is trying to remind these Christians that those emperors, that the government, is not God. That though the emperor Nero is saying, I am God, a common statement during this time is Caesar is Lord. And yet to Christians, they would say Jesus is Lord. This calls major conflict within this culture. And Peter is stating right here, these are human institutions. They are mere men. So this left the Christians asking some great questions that I believe are the same questions that you and I are asking today. How do we believe as, as believers in Jesus? How do we as followers of Jesus live, interact with, engage with, a Christless government, a pagan government. We ask questions. Do, do we rebel against it? Do we protest against our government as citizens of the United States? Do we disobey our government? Or do we just simply cave to whatever our government is calling us to do? These are the same questions of first century Christians, and it is now the same questions of 21st century American Christians as well. Even Jesus asked, was asked a similar question in Matthew chapter 22 when some Pharisees were trying to stump Jesus. And so they came to Jesus and they were like, so Jesus, um, should we pay taxes? That's all the question that we love, right? Should we pay our taxes? And Jesus essentially, this is paraphrased, Eric Standard Version, flip me a coin. So they give him a coin. Jesus looks at it and says, all right, whose face is on this coin? And they all say Caesar. And so what does Jesus say? His response is, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
So as frustrated as we may become with issues even regarding our taxes, Jesus says, give to the government what they are due. He reminds us again to submit to the government. You and I, as followers of Jesus, are to be submissive to the United States government of America. We are citizens here. We should be doing what the government is saying for us to do. It is simply the Bible, whether you like it or I like it or not. That's what it says. Now, when we look at this sort of thing, um, we're to... Uh, as Titus would tell us, as Paul would tell Titus in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. See, being submissive to our United States government and for these men and women in first century Christendom, being submissive to the government and our authorities is more about our obedience and worship of God than it is the government. See, government is a gift from God. Government is a gift from God. We are to submit to the government even if they are not functioning on biblical principles. We are. As believers, we need to be joyful and submit submit to the paying of taxes, to following the speed limit, to getting a fishing license, to going to the DMV, which is a terrible, terrible thing. Building codes and all these other laws, what we are doing when we are obeying these laws is we are worshiping Jesus. Believers, we should be the very best citizens in our city. We should be the very best citizens of our country. From everything from picking up litter on streets to taking care of refugees that may be coming to our city, God is glorified and we reflect that glory whenever we are engaging in these good deeds for our city. When I was a pastor in Arizona, I remember one of the, the ladies who came to our church for a little while, um, we were having a conversation about, and this may have done it in for, I don't know. We were having a conversation one day about recycling. And uh, she was like, um, you know, I, I refuse to recycle. And I was like, why? Why do you refuse to recycle? And she goes, I, I refuse to participate in recycling because the government tells me I should. And so I'm not going to do it. I don't want the government telling me what I can and cannot do with my trash. Now, that's in one avenue, one aspect of our government, what is encouraging us to do. And yet the gospel compels us that we as believers should be involved in redemption and reconciliation and renewal. We are not anarchists. We are not an angry mob or in any attempt should we as believers living within this city and this state in any attempt be trying to overthrow the government. Our cities and our city government should be elated that we as believers are here. We should be taking care of this place. We should be working with city officials. We should be going to the mayor and saying, Mayor, what, how can we as a congregation, as believers in Jesus, help support our city and make it the best place ever? See, we should all, I heart Bowling Green. We should all love this place. We should all be concerned. You know, we should all want the very best, whether it's your neighborhood, where you live, um, the across the tracks areas of our cities, we should all be loving this place to the glory of God. This is what this passage is talking about. He tells us, again, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or to the serene, or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What is he telling him? 
Man, we as believers should not be giving non-believers artillery. And let's all face it. I should get an amen here. We are really good at giving non-believers artillery. Especially out of the ignorance that comes out of our mouths, usually regarding such things as politics and what is best for our country. We need to be extremely, extremely careful with those things because we are doing them to the glory of God, even if it brings forth suffering for us to submit, which we'll get to in the next few weeks. God is not concerned as much with your suffering as much as he is about getting to where you will finally belong in a perfect place, in a perfect theocracy, but we are not there yet. And so we are to submit to what our government tells us and how we should live. Man, in this, when you read the Gospels and the government was coming against Jesus and the early believers, did they ever resist arrest? even if they were doing what was right. No. Peter tried it that one time, and Jesus practically looked at him like, you're an idiot, right? Picks up the ear in the Garden of Gethsemane, spits on it probably, rubs some Jesus juice on it, slaps it on the other side of the guy's head, and it magically is there. And then Jesus essentially says, this is, this is not how we're going to do this, Peter. Right? When we see these things in the Bible, it is so important for us to get submission. That is what the Bible says, and that is how we are to live. The second thing that you need to understand from what the Scripture preaches as well is this. The Gospel calls us to civilly disobey the government. Now you're all perking up. You're like, yeah, that's what I thought it was supposed to say. Yes, all right? We're called to submit to the government, and yet the gospel also tells us that we are to civilly disobey the government. It calls us to civil disobedience. Now, I don't know about you, but I, when I hear these things, and it's telling me to submit, and then it tells me essentially not to submit, I get extremely confused about those things. Here's the principle to remember about submission and to um, not submitting to our local government or state or country's government. The principle to remember is this, is submit to the government, except when the government commands us to sin. Submit to the government, all right, and that's a huge umbrella. Submit to the government unless the government commands us to sin. Most of our frustrations, let's face it, with the United States government of America is not centered around the, government, or around the gospel or them asking us to sin. Most of our frustrations there are, 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 about, are about personal preferences, not about the gospel. So in all of those things, submit, and yet... There are times within history and within our government system that they want us to disobey what God says. And if that is the case, we are called as believers in Jesus that no matter the outcome, if that's prison, if that is death, that we are to refuse at all cost. For instance, in Exodus chapter 1, if you remember, right, Abraham has, has gone and um, they have had, or I guess by this time it's Joseph, and the relationship between the Israelites and Egypt is really good for like, I think, a few hundred years, all right? And what's happening, though, is that Egypt is being overpopulated with the Jews. And so the king at that time declares, all right, here's the deal. We've got to stop this populating people. Because eventually, we're going to be outnumbered by them. And what's the fear? They will overthrow the government. All right? So, the Pharaoh of the time, he tells the midwives, he tells his Egyptian midwives, hey, that whenever you see a Hebrew giving birth and you are helping them, if you notice that it is a little boy, kill it immediately. And the Bible tells us there in chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, verse 17, that the midwives declared that they, they feared God. So the government is saying, kill these babies, 
The midwives fear God, and so they let these boys live. So we see this already. We see this this tension that we are living in. And in most ways, we are to subject ourselves, submit ourselves to the government. And then there are other times when we should not. In the killing of people, in genocide, in abortion. I could go off on a whole tangent this morning and have great opportunity, or it would be a great opportunity to do that, to talk about Planned Parenthood, abortion, all these things. Here's the deal. It's murder of children. And we as believers should have a problem with it. Because the Bible has a problem with it. Over and over and over again. Another issue that we see this arising is is in Acts chapter 5. We covered this several months ago. In Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 29, it says that, that Peter and the rest of the apostles, if you remember this, they're preaching the gospel, right? They're preaching the gospel. The Jewish government does not want them to be preaching the gospel. And this is what it says. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostle answered, Get this, we must obey God rather than man. There are issues that we should submit. There are issues that we should not submit to. If the government is telling us that we can no longer preach the gospel, you know what we do? We preach the gospel, we go to jail, and we are killed, we go to heaven. Good day. Because Jesus doesn't seem to be near as concerned about um, our experience as much as, again, where he is taking us. To live is Christ, to die is gain. If the, if the government, their government, our government is telling us that we cannot preach, what should we do? We should continue to preach because the reality is, is that God's law trumps earthly law, and yet we are to thank God for earthly laws. They are a gift from God. They are to protect us. I'm going to ask you, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Daniel. It's in the, in the Old Testament Um, probably toward the New Testament a little bit, um, the book of Daniel. We're going to go there in just a second, but let me kind of set this up. I wish I had time to kind of preach through the entire book of Daniel today because I believe that is the Old Testament parallel of what we are reading here in 1 Peter. If you remember the book of Daniel, um, Jerusalem, the holy city, has been overtaken by a king named King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. And he is overthrown. They have taken, um, they have taken the money. They have just knocked every you know stone over. They have totally destroyed the city. And in in doing that, he exiled most of the Jews from the most holy city. But he was very smart. He was extremely smart. So what he did was was he went to his helpers, his soldiers, the men who worked for him, and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into Jerusalem, and I want you to find the youngest, the brightest, the smartest, the good-looking, and I want you to bring them back to Babylon. Pull them away from their homeland. Let's take them to our city, and once they get here, we're going to take these young people, and we're going to indoctrinate them with Babylonian culture and literature. This is extremely a strategic plan on King Nebuchadnezzar to assimilate these Jewish young people into the ways and cultures of Babylon. We're going to eradicate their religious views, their cultural identity, and create in them a complete dependence on us as the Babylonian Government. This is a brilliant plan. Hitler used this exact same plan. Nazi youth, right? We're going to pull the brightest, the smartest, the best looking. We're going to pound into these young people. Our literature, 
our propaganda, all these things, we're going to convince them to change their ideologies, their views of God and religion, because here's, here's the nature of the beast, is that so education goes, so the culture goes. You ask any college student, how hard is it to really find yourself and your faith on a college campus? It is extremely, extremely difficult. Through this propaganda, King Nebuchadnezzar was able to destroy many of their identities. He wanted them to forget who they were. He wanted them to forget where they had come from. He wanted them to forget their holy legacy. He removed them from the holy city, placed them in a pagan place, and then just began to drill into them for years what it is that he believed and how he wanted them to act. Because what do you know he could do? He could send them back eventually to the holy city. And it would no longer be that place says that Daniel and his friends, you guys may have heard of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and a, a bandigo or a banjo, depending on where you're from, all right? When you look at these, Daniel and his friends here, even the names Shadrach, Meshach, and a bandigo, those are not their Hebrew names. Those are their pagan names. So not only did it indoctrinate them in educational literature, give them a doctoral degree in Babylonian culture, but he also changed their name. He wanted every bit of their historical religious identity to be completely removed from them. And yet, Daniel and his friends submitted many occasions to this king. They did. And yet, there were other instances where they refused to submit to the king. See, Daniel and his friends had great favor with the king. Let's look at some of these illustrations. Um, in Daniel chapter 1, uh, if we could have time to read through there, um, Daniel and these young men, they were well incorporated into what was happening. They were well liked by the established government. And yet, Daniel and these guys refused to eat from the king's table. One, because they were Jews and they had dietary um, laws um, that kept them from wanting to eat those things. Why? Because they were supposed to be a set-apart people. The king was saying, feed them from my table. And yet, Daniel and his friends refused to do this. In the ESV study Bible, if you don't have the Bible, I would encourage you to get it. It's the, I believe, the best study Bible. It says this, Daniel and his friends avoided the luxurious diet of the king's table as a way of protecting themselves from being ensnared by the temptations of the Babylonian culture. They used their, their distinctive diets as a way of retaining their distinctive identity as Jewish exiles and avoiding complete assimilation into Babylonian culture, which was the king's goal with these conquered subjects. With these arrests, uh, excuse me, with this re resisted, excuse me, restricted diet, they continually reminded themselves in this time of testing that they were the people of God in a foreign land and they were dependent on their food, indeed, for their very lives upon God, their creator, not the king. So they set up themselves. Were they reading the books? They read the books. Did they learn the languages? Yes, the government wants me to learn this language. We learn this language. Did they learn the music? Yes, the philosophies, all these sorts of things. But God's law says you should not eat this to make yourselves distinctive. They were offering this food, and Daniel and his friends said we would not eat this food. The second example we get from Daniel chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. King Nebuchadnezzar, he comes to them, and he says, I'm going to set up this huge golden statue of myself. And every time the bell rings, an angel gets its wings, and you are to bow down and to worship me. All the people in the land, you will look up and look at this golden statue, you will fall to your knees, and you will begin to worship me. That was cool for most people, except for Daniel and his friends. 
By this time, Daniel had moved up the ranks. Again, he is finding favor with non-Christians. He is submitting to things, even if it's causing him to suffer, that aren't against the gospel, that aren't against the commands of God. He is working well with the government until they tell him to bow down and to worship a golden image of the king as God. And yet, they would not do it. And so because of it, we got the great story, right? Seven times hotter, as King Nebuchadnezzar says. He's like, here's the deal. If you don't bow down and worship this, then I'm going to put you into the fiery furnace. They refused to do it. And you know what? God didn't <laughs> remove that opportunity. They went into the furnace. And yet, because they stood against the government, in this situation, God rescued their lives and even walked amongst them in the fire, as the Bible tells us. The third thing was this. And I believe this is in chapter 6. Chapter 6, yeah, Daniel chapter 6. So by this time, the Bible tells us here in Daniel chapter 6, it says, um, in, I don't know which verse it is, it says this, Then this Daniel became distinguished among all other high officials um, because of an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. Do you get this? Believer in God, pagan government. The man of God is being lifted high and is being placed in a position where he is now going to be over all of the king's land, people, and property. There were things that he submitted to. There were things that he would not submit to. He was distinguished amongst all of them. Well, some of the other officials hated this about Daniel, that he was being lifted high to this position, and this is what they say in chapter 6. The high officials uh, sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no guard or complaint. First Peter, what does he say? For this, will, this is the will of God, that by doing so, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Daniel's doing that. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him then these men said we shall not find any ground or complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of God so what do they do they can't catch him on anything he's being submissive but they know if they make a statement against his faith in God, then Daniel will rebel. The Bible tells us that these officials came up with this idea, and they were like, they go to the king and they're like, all right, here's the deal, king. No one should be praying to anyone but you. And if they do pray, then we're going to throw them into the lion's den. Immediately, Daniel heard that this, um, this decree was signed. And the Bible tells us there in chapter 6 that immediately, when he knew that this was signed, the Bible tells us he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber, opened toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done, and this is the kicker, previously. It wasn't all of a sudden that this decree was coming and Daniel was going to somehow now get religious and start talking about God, but he kept up his, his practices of following God every day and praying to God every day. And when the government came against him, he refused to submit to this because it was asking him to sin against his God. That is when we stand. So in most things, what do we do? We submit. Brothers and sisters, believers in Christ, some of the issues that we have with our government, which is a gift from God, we need to get over. We need to chill out on. Because it is unbiblical for us to be going against it. 
However, we are in ever-changing times. See, the 21st century is much more like the 1st century than it was the 20th century. For several hundred years, we as believers living in America have had good working relationship, a good um, engagement with our culture. We were looked highly upon. Even me as a pastor was looked highly upon. It was a, a, a good pr profession to go into. People had high esteem for a pastor, great honor for a pastor, but things have drastically changed. This is not the time of Andy Griffith. Something has happened, even I would say in the last 20 years. Christians are being more pushed to the boundaries. We are being more marginalized. We are much like these Christians. We are asking the questions. The government seemingly is scared of us. And guess what? We are now scared of the government. Because there are some issues, as much as there should be some things that we're submitting to, there's some things that are coming down from the top down from the government that should concern us. For instance, recently, and I debated whether or not to use names here, because I, am, I want you to know, like I'm not even anti these people. I, I, I'm just not that guy, I'm not that political. Because I, I believe that I can disagree with somebody and, and still have a relationship with them. So I'm not going to tell you this to give you artillery, but I tell you this as a pastor because to show you how things are changing. Hillary Clinton recently in discussing Planned Parenthood, these are all within the last few months. Listen to what she says. This is creepy. Laws have to be backed up with resources and political will she explained. A deep-seated, excuse me, and deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. Speaking about abortion, she makes a statement, whether you believe with abortion or not, but she's making a statement about how that our religious beliefs toward abortion must change. That's scary. President Obama. Again, I, I actually have great respect for President Obama. He made a speech one time, made me cry, and that's weird. Said this about the same-sex marriages. Our nation was founded on a bedrock principle that we are all created equal. The project of each generation is to bridge the meaning of those founding words with the realities of changing times. A never-ending quest to ensure those words ring true for every single American. Progress on this journey often comes in small increments. Sometimes two steps forward, one step back. Compelled by persistent effort of dedicated citizens. And then sometimes there are days like this. When that slow, steady effort is rewarded with justice that arrives like a thunderbolt, shifts in the hearts and minds is possible, and those who have come far on their journey to equality have a responsibility to reach back and help others join them. That is scary. Lots of things. Whether President Obama's from America or not, that's ignorance. I love you in saying that. Okay? Government telling us, though, that we need to change our religious beliefs, whatever religion that is, because I'm for religious liberty for Muslims, for the Jews, for Christians, for Wiccans, for humanists. We've got to be for religious liberty for all of those people as Americans. But when the government is telling us that we need to change our religion, and that people who have progressed in their viewpoints of these things need to help us. Those are scary times. They're scary. So what do we do with all this? We submit, and we disobey. 
We have to do both. The maturity arises in us as believers in knowing when we should submit and when we should stand against. We need to get something. We need to understand something. He tells us here in this passage at the very end. Honor everyone. That means all people. Rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, Bosnian, Russian, Asian, Dominican. Honor everyone. Respect everyone. Even if you disagree. Honor them. Respect them. Why? Because we are reflecting Jesus in that interaction. You need to learn the difference between a debate and an argument. That's a very thin line. But you've got to learn the difference. We have got to learn the difference. Not pointing my fingers at you this morning. Pointing our fingers at us. What else is he going to say here? Love the brotherhood, specifically the church. You should love the people that you are a part of a church with. You should deeply love them. You should never have, I, I should never have to beg things of Lar within our home. Because we're family. Within the church, your church should never have to beg you. Out of love, we respond to one another, and we respond to that church. You see, the issue that we're going to learn over the next several weeks is this issue with authority that we have toward the government is not only toward the government. It's toward our husband and our wives. I get to preach on that in a few weeks. Woo! Wives, submit to your husbands. Pastor Justin next week is going to preach on submitting to your boss. Isn't that tough? I have failed miserably at that before. Okay? But it goes to, to beyond just those things. We need to be very careful in what we're saying about all people in authority. Because it goes on there to say, fear God, which we'll come to, and honor the emperor. We're to honor them. The Bible tells us that we're to be slow to speak. And not as a person in authority over you, I have no authority except for what God gives me, but as your brother and sister in Christ, let me speak into something very briefly in regards to our government and some things that we need to be careful of. Circulating emails, tweets, and social media about our government and your disdain for people like our president is not beneficial. It is not healthy. It is not honoring of the position because we must, we do not honor or, or we honor the position because we honor God who has given us that permission. I don't know about you guys, but I love America. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to live in a democracy, okay? But it's still Babylon. This is still not our home. And yet, we are called to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and to honor these men or women who are placed into these positions. Whether you vote for them or not, you're to honor them. And people, whenever things happen, love to get on social media and send nasty, sometimes racist emails, disgusting emails, hateful emails, tweets, Facebook messages. This does not advance the kingdom. It does not make our conduct, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. It does not make us look that way. See, I know this happens because I used to work in an elementary school where I would hear kids who have no clue about politics, all right? 
Now, they can't spell democracy, neither can I, but, you know, here we are. And you would hear kids yelling, or not yelling, but having major opinions about politics and political leaders that they know nothing about. Why? Because it was taught. It was taught to them. See, looking at people of position, if you've ever worked in a school, you will quickly realize that teachers do all things wrong, and your kid does everything right. It's an issue of authority. Kids disrespectful to teacher. Teacher meets with parent. Parent disrespectful to teacher. You wonder where they're getting it. These things are taught. Ava's been watching and asking me some questions about people like Donald Trump and these sorts of things. I've tried to be very careful in what I'm saying because we need to honor them even if we disagree. We must understand that our war is not against our government. It's not. But when we war against our government and it's not over the gospel, it helps no one. See, our citizenship as Americans is trumped by our citizenship in heaven. Also, our law is not founded solely in the Constitution of the United States. But if you're a believer, you have a greater Constitution. And that Constitution is the Word of God. So as a believer, it must trump, and I must view, saturate all things, even law and government, through the eternal Constitution, which is the Word of God. I want you to understand something. Jesus is not American. Jesus is God. Jesus, when he comes back in Revelation 19, riding a white horse, carrying a sword, a warlike king this time, is covered in a robe dipped in blood, not the American flag. See, our brothers and sisters throughout the world live like this in mass chaos every day. They do. We've seen this week a young man supposedly go into a college campus and supposedly ask questions like, what do you believe? And if they say they believe in Jesus, then he killed them. There's a lot of conflicting reports about all of that. And we get really blown. This is the daily lives of most brothers and sisters throughout the world. See, we make a lot of decisions based on, even as believers, we struggle with this because of economics. God is so God, and God is so for His glory, and God is so for His church, that I want you to understand something. you got to get this. Is God will, will discipline people, right? Sometimes He disciplines them by collapse. Sometimes he disciplines them by taking away their comfort. Some of them, he will discipline them to get them ultimately where he wants them to go. He will take away their riches. It's the book of Job. He will take everything from them, even Americans, even America, if he so chooses. Because that's a major concern for us, is our economy. Not that big deal to God. Why? Because it's all His. On the second thing of that, is God will also discipline people by giving them everything they want. Everything. Romans. This is what the people wanted, so what did He do? He gave them over to the passions of their flesh. Both of those things are the wrath of God and the discipline of God. He is the God that both gives and takes away. 
So I'll leave you with two thoughts. One, 1 Timothy tells us how should we respond? We should pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 says, Pray for them so that we may live a peaceful life with them. And then I'll leave you with this passage that I think, again, culminates all of what we're talking about today. It says this in the book of Romans. If you have there, you can turn with me and then we're going to pray. Pastor Justin is going to come lead us in communion. Listen to what he says. Again, it's, it's the Bible. Chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to those whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. God has given us a gift on this earth. It's called government. We need to be thankful for it, and in that thanks are thankful to God for what He's given us. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for policemen. I am thankful for laws. I am thankful to be in a democracy. I am thankful for our president. That is a thankless job for the most part. I am thankful for checks and balances like the Senate and Congress. And we need to learn with joyful hearts in submission to God to submit to those things because we realize they are a gift from God. And yet, believers, I am not a doomsdayist at all. But if we continue on this track, what is going to be brought to the surface by some of these laws and regulations is a culling of true believers and cultural ones. Because true believers will stand. Cultural Christians are going to go the way of the culture. I encourage you as my brothers and sisters, stand firm in the gospel. Know the gospel. And if these things do come, then let us be willing to stand. And meanwhile, honor, respect, and pray for our government. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for this opportunity, Lord, to worship you. And uh, Lord, just even for me, and just this opportunity is to preach this and how, how difficult it can be for me intellectually or academically, and yet not wanting it could e easily to get riled up and rah-rah and kind of grip my teeth and shake my fist um, at issues regarding our government, and yet there's been enough of that. Lord, I pray that you would help us as believers in the gospel to view all things through that gospel, that we would stand where we need to stand, and that we would learn to um, joyfully submit where it is that we need to submit. So Lord, I pray that you would help us that we would not make our government God, but that we would realize that government is a gift from God. Help us to be like Daniel, to find favor amongst our local government, city government, state government, national government. But Lord, let us also be confident in you to stand 
to pray, to preach the gospel, to stand for life, to stand for marriage, and to honor you in all of those things, Jesus. May we learn to worship you. May we celebrate you, God, in the realization that you are the ultimate king. You put people into position that you want to be put in position. You give, you take away, you place pagan rulers over the Israelites for their good and for your glory. Help us to trust that you are good. Help us to honor you, to fear you, and to honor everyone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.